Welcome back to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. Whether you work for a team on the field, the ice, a court track, or a diamond, our association gives you an opportunity to grow. You're listening to episode number 15, a late start to baseball, issues facing finishing a season, with your host, Bobby Hacker, president of the Sports Lawyers Association. Alongside Bobby is Greg Genske, CEO of Venere Baseball and law professor at UC Berkeley School of Law. Sit back and enjoy this episode of the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's Sports Lawyers Association podcast. I'm Bobby Hacker, president of the Sports Lawyers Association, and it's my pleasure today to have as my guest Greg Genske, uh, noted agent in the sports world, and with a new gig, it would appear, having joined Vayner Sports in the last few weeks, days, seems pretty new, Greg. Well, first of all, Bobby, it's it's good to talk to you, and thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, and we we are on to a new venture. So uh, our our agency is now Vayner Sports, and we announced it just a couple of weeks ago, and we're very excited about it. So, Greg, your background, obviously, you're a lawyer. I know you went, you were a Pepperdine Wave as an undergraduate, and then you went to Berkeley Law. I guess we have to call it Berkeley Law now. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, yes. And when you finished law school, you you originally began your career as a litigator. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, I began as a litigator and spent about seven years uh, as a, a litigator and trial attorney, trying cases all over the country. And you know, it just so happened that my very last trial was representing two of the pioneer leading sports agents in the field, and that final trial kind of took me into an entirely different direction in becoming a sports agent. Well, that's the perfect segue to one of my first questions, which is, how does a litigator end up as a sports agent? Well, as far as I know, I, I'm, I'm the only one who's done it. Uh, you know, it's, and, and you know, I, I, I also teach uh, law school back at Berkeley and at UC Irvine as well. And a lot of the students are very interested in the sports agent profession. You know, they're asking me advice like that. And I, you know, I got to say that I, I don't think that my path is one that necessarily can be emulated. Uh, it just was a really unique deal. You know, I was a, an aspiring baseball player in my life. But once I realized I wasn't going to get beyond college, that I needed a different profession, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. And then just serendipitously having success as a trial attorney brought me back to sports uh, by first representing sports agents and then becoming one. When I'm lecturing at law schools, and especially during my tenure, my 18 years at Fox Sports, and I would knew that many of the students were interested in following my path, but I think as we all understand, it's a relatively small set of job opportunities for lawyers directly in you know networks, leagues, et cetera, et cetera. And I was often asked the question, well, if I can't do that, what's the best way to get into the business? And my advice was always start out as a litigator. And oftentimes law students look at you like, really? <laughs> and I think it's a great training for being a transactional lawyer. What, what about you? Don't you agree? I do. I, and I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of room for growth as a litigator, a lot of opportunity to try a bunch of different things, including negotiating settlements and, and drafting settlement contracts, uh, including having to on your feet get really prepared and up to speed in different substantive areas of law, procedural areas of law, and uh, develop that expertise quickly and advise people. 
you know, and really that's the crux of what I do and have always done, whether it's as a litigator, trial attorney, contract negotiator, agent is I represent people and a litigator gave me a, a really good training ground uh, as to how to do that in a lot of different contexts and in a lot of different substantive law areas. Which I think speaks well to the preparation of becoming a sports lawyer, because as we have discussed, a sports lawyer is a pretty broad subject. It's not like our, a unique discipline like trusts and estates or tax. It's sort of the potpourri of the legal practice. That's absolutely right. And, and in a lot of ways, you, know, you, you do wear many hats. And in a lot of ways, you're similar to a general counsel of a company for each athlete that you represent. Uh, where you're you're required to get a certain level of of expertise so that you can advise your client, even if that advice is helping them choose among other professionals who primarily will represent them in that space. Uh, but it's a it's a pretty broad undertaking. It's not simply negotiating, you know, one paragraph of the uniform player contract in their given sport, uh, but it's really it's really helping them develop a business plan for their career, navigate the most important decisions they're going to make professionally and sometimes personally, uh, and really. Uh, serving a, a lot of different functions. Yeah, well, that, that raises a very interesting question that I think our audience would be interested in is the role of a sports agent has some oftentimes, I think, been mischaracterized as this glamorous profession where you negotiate a player's contract and you get paid this huge sum of money. I think the truth is a little a little different in terms of some of what you just said, but if you could dig in a little deeper on the concept of besides negotiating that deal, what is your role as an agent for these athletes? Well, there's no question that negotiating the big deal is, is super exciting and fun. Um, and, you know, I remember those press conferences early in my career, sitting up there at the podium and, you know, feeling very proud and, and feeling a sense of achievement and feeling really happy for the client I'm sitting next to. Those remain big things and fun things, but they're, as you suggest, there's a lot more to it than that. Typically, these involve entering into relationships uh, for me with men who are who are young men and have a lot to learn. I've always been very focused on education in terms of discharging my duties as a lawyer, as an agent, that my job here is to help educate these young men who I have the privilege of representing, also to help them in every way they need help, going through the difficult areas in their life, in their professional life, in their personal life, uh, help, having, to, having to be really honest with them and, and tell them things maybe they don't want to hear. A lot of the work of, of being a sports agent is uh, laborious. Uh, it's not always glamorous. It's not a lot of fun. Uh, but those are the things that are necessary to do your job effectively, to be in a position to negotiate the big deal and to be at that podium next to your player. And another thing, I you know, the, those press conferences and big deals were the highlights. Now, for me, a lot of times it's as simple as the major league debut for the player you've represented since they were in high school, who made that long journey and just really being a part of it with them. Yeah, and in your career, I know that you've represented athletes across different sports, but seeing as how we've just passed through opening day last week, it's difficult that the end of July is opening day for all of us baseball fans, but I'd like to focus in our conversation today in talking about baseball and through a variety of factors. Obviously, you've negotiated athlete contracts in both sports, but is there anything that you would say is different about working baseball deals than, let's say, in the in football deals that you've done for NFL players? 
Sure. Um, there are many, many similarities, as, as you would suspect, but there are also great differences. Uh, in the NFL, you never truly have the, the, the ultimate power, the power of free agency uh, that we enjoy in some circumstances in baseball. Now, it's not that often. It, it's not often a player is able to acquire the service time and turn down multi-year contracts to get to a point where they get the great opportunity to explore free agency. But in football, we really don't get it. And you know, the time where I've had the opportunity to represent the Hall of Fame superstar football player, it's really quite shocking that you know you you don't you not only do you not get to get to free agency, but you don't have the leverage prior to free agency that you would otherwise have, uh, where the club owns things such as franchise tags and can otherwise inhibit a player getting to free agency. That's a big difference. Also, in the NFL deals, there is a lot of complexity relating to restraints. Uh, salary cap restraints and just basically restraints on player compensation that need to be taken into account to negotiate a deal that will ultimately get approved because it complies with the various rules. Uh, so those are quite diff different as well. In addition, on the NFL side, you don't have true guaranteed contracts like we get in baseball. So a lot of times we're, we're, we're negotiating with various different signing bonus components uh, that will allow us to not only comply with salary cap restrictions and limitations, but also will allow us to protect more of that money, to make more of the, the money you see in an NFL contract either guaranteed or close to it so we know that the player is going to take it home. Obviously, when you're dealing with kids right out of college or let's say high school, obviously you're dealing with young men. And although the ones that are 18 are adults, how do you balance your role as a lawyer representing a client with parents in the room and the parents' involvement. I mean, they're not the client when you have an 18-year-old, but how do you juggle that relationship? That, that's a great question because that's a really central part of, of our job and what we do. First and foremost, I always stick to my, my technical legal obligations. That it, know, know who your client is, right? My client is the young man I'm representing, and I make that point very clear to the parents or anybody else who may be close to the young man that this is my client. Now, I don't anticipate there will be any conflict here. I think that we're all gonna be rowing in the same direction and we all have the same goal here, which is what is best uh, for this young man and his career. However, in the event that there are conflicts, it's a really clear question. And that is your, your loyalty is with and remains with the client that you represent. And you, you undoubtedly over the course of a relationship with a player, over the years, you will run into problems. You will run into problems with conflicts uh, with the player and those close to the player who may want something different, which in your judgment is not right for the player. So that's frequently an issue. I mean, I guess you have to be part diplomat as an agent because for those of us that have ever spent any time in a locker room, everybody's talking. And everybody's talking about what they got and what their agent got. And I've sure that in the course of your career, no matter how great a deal you've done for one of your clients, you've probably gotten those calls. Absolutely. Players are, are very focused on the business in their sport. They're very focused on uh, the work that their agents done and, and the work that agents may have done for other players. And so you're, you're constantly going to have that. And I've always embraced that because again, a central focus of my representation of players is one of, a, as an educator and really teaching them. So I, I, you know, I like to think my players are incredibly well-informed about their deals, but not just their deals, but, but the market for their deals. 
and to really understand different circumstances, different deals and, and why they happen. So I, I, I always embrace that. I, I think it's great when players are, are focused on the business uh, and they're really taking ownership of it. So I, I've always embraced that. Well, that's, that's really good to hear. So here we are, Greg. It's now the end of July. We've played three or four games of a baseball season. Today, the news out of the Marlins isn't so good for baseball. But I know that you were very involved with your players and probably the union in the course of trying to get a season started. Can you spend a little time, obviously without revealing any confidences, but talk about the process just to get this season started as between the players and the Players Association? Absolutely, yes. I, I was very involved in this process and offered my services to, to help facilitate an agreement in any way possible. I thought initially it was, it was wonderful news and a great sign when Major League Baseball and the Players Association got together early during the quarantine, reached uh, a tentative agreement about the rules that will apply once we get back to work. And so that agreement was reached in March. Uh, I think it was the first of the professional team sports to reach an agreement. And I was very encouraged with that. And I thought the PA did a wonderful job at securing an important aspect, which was player service time, that players would receive a full year, despite the fact there wouldn't be a full year. And I thought it was great that they uh, were able to hold on to at least pro rata salaries, meaning the salaries would be the same uh, just based on the number of games that were played. Uh, I thought those were very encouraging signs. Unfortunately, that early progress did not translate into a, a smooth process or a deal at the end of the day, and no agreement was reached. What we have is Major League Baseball imposing uh, a season on the players and the players reserving their right to file a grievance, feeling that whatever rights they have in a grievance were more valuable than the concessions Major League Baseball was willing to give up to actually have an agreement with the players. And whether that was a wise decision or not, I guess we'll find out. From my vantage point, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more urgency on the part of all sides, but certainly on the part of those representing players, given that players were going to get a pro rata salary and the more games played meant the more salary for players. So I felt it was incumbent upon our side to really advance things faster. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, also, unfortunately, there were many leaks to the press. Uh, and I think I've even heard Commissioner Manfred expressing some regret over that and, and wish that, that hadn't been the case. And so I think what happened is you have leaks to the press, uh, you have hardball negotiating, and it, it really led to a little distrust in the process. And that is not a good sign for labor relations going forward. Yeah, I mean, I was a little surprised because for those out there and the, listening to this podcast that don't know, the commissioner was the head of labor for the MLB for the longest time. And I was curious as to how they would end up in a situation where you allowed the players to preserve their rights to grieve to the NLRB. Was that a head scratcher for a lot of the people in your space? Absolutely. This was a unique opportunity for baseball and the Players Association to come together during an international emergency situation and reach an agreement that was going to be best for the sport, best for the game, best for the players, best for the fans, and, and really do something special here. Take advantage of the fact that we can get on the field sooner than other sports get back. Uh, re really take advantage. And that, and that didn't happen. And it, it was a failure in 
the collective bargaining negotiating process that an agreement couldn't be reached. I think there's no other way to look at it other than that. And again, you you do have to note that there were there was a conflict in the interests here where players wanted regular season games because that's what their salary is based on. The owners were more focused on postseason games because that's what really drives the revenue, especially in a world where all we have are TV contracts. And so the obvious answer to bridge that gap was to guarantee as many games as possible, but also to share in the playoff money. And now we've seen a little bit of that post agreement, but that that really is the head scratcher that they weren't able to get together and do that. And again, it doesn't loom well when we've got another uh, to bargaining agreement negotiation underway and we've got an expiration of the existing agreement coming up shortly. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 problematic to me as a huge baseball fan. I'm speaking very personally here, you know, missing all these months of baseball. But is there anything you can sort of shed a light on from the players' proposal that at one point they had close to a hundred game regular season that they had proposed that seemed to be summarily rejected? Was that a function of the owners' fear of not having a gate to add to the revenue pot? Yeah, I think I think the owners were were comfortable delaying the negotiation. Um, they were not comfortable having a game total that was around 100 or probably anywhere near that uh, because they did want to defray that labor cost. In addition, the owners were insisting on the players being really sensitive to the finances, the lost revenue. But at the same time, they were not sharing their information. So it's it's really hard to get your business partner to be concerned about your purported financial losses when you won't share the information with them. So I think that was a big contributing factor as well. When this was all going down, I began to do a little research on my own. And I realized that in these negotiations, especially one that became so much more public than maybe it had to be, that the discussion kept using the phrase lost revenue. Now, I think the general public sees here's lost revenue and maybe it engenders some sympathy for the owners. Oh, they're losing money. There's a difference between lost revenue and losing money, correct? Correct. And so I think when you look at a universe where the average value of an MLB franchise has increased by more than a billion dollars in the last six years, you sort of have to ask, what was their point? What were they trying to get at that they wanted their cake and eat it too? It's just left kind of a, I think, a sour taste in, in baseball fans, but different if we go back to 94, it's a very different and it's hard to make them analogous situations. Oh, I, I agree with you completely. Once we got that first deal, the March deal, I want to go back to that for a second. How, how did that unravel? Because the March agreement seemed to have all these things. There wasn't going to be a right to grieve. They got the service time, which I will forever call the Chris Bryant rule, pro rata salaries. And they were just working on a number of games. I mean, is it your sense that the owners were just pushing hard against playing the games because they couldn't offset what they were paying the players with, you know, with the merchandising and food and beverage and parking and butts in the seats? That is certainly a, a reasonable motivating factor on the part of the owners uh, for it. Um, I don't know that the agreement unraveled. Rather, there were conditions that needed to be met for it to be fully enforced. And some of those conditions remained a question mark as this coronavirus has remained a mystery. And, you know, in fact, we were able to, to resume games, but we weren't able to resume games in all 
ballparks with fans in the stands, as everybody knows. And that was an issue as it related to the initial agreement reached in March as well. I, I don't know that the agreement unraveled. The March agreement provided a great basis from which, from which they should have completed negotiation and had a unified front and agreement going forward, which unfortunately wasn't the case. It was just recently announced last week that there was an agreement. My question is, is it really an agreement for a 16-game playoff season? And when I say, was it really an agreement, was it an arm's length or was this another commissioner mandate? I believe it, I believe this is an agreement. So, yeah, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe this was agreed to in exchange for the $50 million in playoff revenue going back to players. Which, considering everybody's working on for less money, that's an important number. And I think, you know, truthfully, the postseason, you know, where my background is, the postseason is where the media companies are making their money on baseball. No question. And Bobby, you you hold, I think, a lot of the key facts here as to why uh, Major League Baseball perhaps didn't want to share all of the facts. And some of those facts are that those TV contracts are still paying them even during this thing. That's the sneaky part where... You have to be careful when you're talking about lost revenue. Exactly. Lost revenue is not losing money because if you're still getting, you know, your national television money, which is pretty good, it's probably a little different than the RSNs, but, you know, there's still an income stream coming in. And if you look at, you know, my initial comment about the valuation of a franchise and also one of the stats that really stood out for me was over the past four seasons, player salaries have increased by 1%, while owners' revenue has increased by 15%. Yep. That's kind of a head-scratcher for me when you see a business that relies on its workers, you know, its, its players, and you have a blip. I mean, it's a big blip. Let's not downplay a worldwide pandemic. But you have a blip in what was a very popular, thriving sport. You know, baseball was still drawn big now last year. It was a good year for a great year for attendance. You know, ratings in the postseason, you know, were sort of about what they were. But, you know, the RSNs were still making good money. And the owners chose to not want a, a less profitable year, which raises the question, you're what, a year away from a new CBA in baseball? More, Yeah, pretty much. So that's going to be, I mean, I think Tony Clark's got a hell of a job in front of him because I think any sort of trust that had been built seems to have been, well, if not damaged, somewhat hindered. I think damage is a fair word. And there are two primary issues, in my opinion, at the crux of it on, on the side of Major League Baseball. In order to create a cooperative spirit and complete a new deal, there needs to be greater transparency for Major League Baseball as to the true finances of the game for one of the reasons you just identified in terms of the increase in player salaries versus the increase in actual revenues. And the, the other is they need to stop leaking things to the press. Uh, you know, you need to have trust uh, on, on each side and, and trust in knowing that, you know, you and I are going to sit down and negotiate. And before anything goes to the press, we're going to talk to one another first. And I think those are the two primary issues. As we go into this season, did you have any conversations with any of your clients questioning whether it was safe for them to show up and start playing again? Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, kind of like the public at large with players, I got a wide range of perspectives on it, you know, yeah. with, the, with those that like, don't really care. I hope I get it and get it over with. 
with those who like, I absolutely do not want to get this thing. I do not want to expose any of my, my loved ones. I do not have confidence in any safety precautions. So I, I, I experienced from my clients, the whole, the full range of different potential responses. And it just, I guess it underscores this reality that we're all living with is that we're still all trying to figure out what exactly is going on. I'm not sure I, I perfectly understand it, but let's look at a couple of scenarios. The first is I'm a major league baseball player. Either I have some comorbidity or I have concerns about my family. And I say, I just don't want to play this season. How is my contract affected? You're not getting paid this year. Is my contract term extended by the missed season? No. So basically, if I have a five-year deal getting $5 million a year, and because of this, I sit out, I get, instead of $25 million over five years, I'm getting 20 Yeah, you basically lose this season. Interesting. So if I'm one year away from free agency and I choose not to play because of the disease, I'm a free agent at the end of the year? That's correct. Wow. Well, I, I should say it will depend on the amount of service time you had in the preceding year. But I think your analogy is assuming a big leaguer who's been yeah. in the big leaguer is getting full. Yes. Then in that case, you get the full year of service time. Was that part of that March negotiation that has survived? That's correct. Wow. that's creates all kinds of interesting scenarios. And so my second question is, if let's say I'm Justin Verlander and I'm making, I don't know, $30 million a year or whatever he makes as his base salary. And all of a sudden, he's now, it sounds like from what I read today, hurt his elbow, he's out for the season. He still gets all his money as if he'd played all 60 games and his service time, right? Assuming that there are isn't actually a 60-game season, but he will, he will receive his entire, he will receive his entire pro rata salary for the amount of games actually played. I am not suggesting by any stretch. I know where you're going with this, Bobby. (laughs) People are faking these things. Yeah. But is this just a good faith thing that players aren't going to say like, I don't want to do this. I pulled my hamstring. I can't run. Absolutely. So there's no, you know, it's just good. You know, if I say that I'm injured, I'm injured. Well, I mean, there's there's always uh, grievances allowed. And, you know, certainly if you think a player is faking an injury, then, you know, it could be grieved. Okay. And I'll just say we have no reason to believe Justin Verlander uh, did, did such a thing. No, no. It's, it's, a, it's a shame for baseball. He's a, one of the great stars. You know, I'm not going to get into my team loyalties. We'll leave that to the side. But, you know, it's a shame when, when, that's, when baseball loses one of the great stars of the game and Nobody's going to argue that Verlander's one of the great stars of the game and has been for a long time. And, you know, as a fan of the game, would hope he would continue. But I was just curious, you know, how that impacts, you know, his his earnings and his career. Sort of following down that path, as I'm sure you saw today, I believe 14 Marlins players tested positive today. I've heard 13 or 14. I think eight are the new ones and five were yesterday or the day before. But yeah, more or less. Yeah, so now these they have to be quarantined and they can't be part of team activities for 10 days or two weeks, correct? Correct. Where are they on rosters now? Are they still at the 60 but or 50 or what? Where are the roster numbers now? And 
how do you fill out 14 players for the next two weeks of the season, assuming, for argument's sake, that we continue the season? Well, the I know the Marlins have already uh, petitioned Major League Baseball for an answer and for some assistance uh, in order to expand the rosters. Uh, this this is a live situation, and I have no idea what the answer is going to be. But it would seem to me it's a it's a real problem uh, as to whether or not the remainder of the team needs to be quarantined. I, I just don't know. So I think that this is something that Commissioner Manfred is looking at right now as to how they're going to handle it with the current roster rules. Yeah, I mean, it's, it creates an interesting question, and I've seen more conversation about this around the NFL, and I'm sure the NFL is going to learn from this example. But you conceivably could be in a situation where Major League Baseball teams have to forfeit games. Now, in the normal context, a forfeit is a, a loss for the forfeiting team and a win for the team scheduled to play them. Are you aware of any conversations about that, or do we just assume that's how it moves forward? No, I'm, I'm not aware. In fact, I, I've had lots of conversations, but not with anybody who is right now trying to make a decision on those very important problems. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the concerns, and it's interesting because uh, having hand, you know negotiated broadcast rights agreements with baseball, the only focus, and it's true of football as well and, and, and other you know so-called major sports, that no one ever contemplated a worldwide pandemic. The only thing that was ever contemplated in negotiations were player strikes. What happens if there are player strike and there's no season to be played? So we're now in a situation where potential for, we've certainly missed a big part of a season and we could miss a whole season, raises you know an important question, which is one that I know is part of NFL negotiations on a couple of the rights agreements in which with which I was involved is is it the same property if you bring up a bunch of minor leaguers to fill out the squad what's your sense that's a great question i think that what we're dealing with here is just a very very imperfect world a very imperfect league a very imperfect plan and i think these decisions are just going to be made on the fly now do you know is uh our commissioner manfred and tony clark are they in regular communication or is has the commissioner's action sort of put a block in that? I believe they remain in communication, consistent communication, but I'm not privy to those conversations. Sure. It's just like a lot of sports fans want to know what's happening because the system seems so fluid right now. And the, the whole Marlins thing today that was reported today, if I'm a major league baseball player, am I looking at my, my manager or my GM and saying, I'm not going to Florida to play. I'm not going to go play in their ballpark. Now, have you heard any chatter about that, about player discontent, about the just generally the travel part of this? I, I haven't heard any specific players mention it, but there, there's no there's no question, but that's a center of conversation, no, no doubt about it. And you, you see the Yankees showing up into Philly, and they, they want nothing to do with the facilities or staff that the Marlins were just using as a guest in Philadelphia. Well, that's a whole other question about established protocols for maintaining visitors clubhouse and even team clubhouses. I found anecdotally reading some summaries of the protocol that was agreed upon for playing of the games. I was taken aback somewhat by specific language with respect to the spacing of players or the national anthem 
and for seventh inning stretch music, but I couldn't for the life of me find anything about dugouts or locker rooms. Were those even addressed in this health protocol? I believe they were addressed, but honestly, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with it. Okay. Just curious because obviously the union's role seems to be as part of the bargaining agreement are working conditions. Yeah. And the union's been very on top of it. And even though there was no agreement reached on the economic issues, they were very involved in the health and safety issues. Well, that's good. There's a lot of other moving parts. And I know you don't have a crystal ball. I have to tell clients all the time they didn't give me one when I graduated from law school. But looking in your experience in your crystal ball, do you have any thoughts on where this season goes? You optimistic? You guarded? I'm an opt. I'm an optimist by nature, so I'm typically optimistic, but I am guardedly optimistic, no question. And again, it just goes back to the fact that we're sitting here in the middle of this pandemic, many months in, and we don't really see things getting better. In fact, getting worse on many different fronts. At the end of the day, you know, these are these are people. These are men who are being forced to play under these conditions, unfortunately, because of a pandemic. And I just, I I think the situation is just unpredictable. Any further thoughts on the state of baseball today to share with us before we wrap this up? This has been really terrific and thank you so much. But, you know, you're on the front lines of dealing with these baseball players, dealing with the unique situation. And it would seem to me that normally you'd be sitting here, you know, we've gone through the all-star break. We've, you know, got some couple months of baseball left. It's real exciting time clients finishing up contracts, you know, is your perspective on how you deal with your clients any different now than it would have been had we had a normal baseball season getting ready for their futures? Yeah, I think so for, for sure. I think it's, it's very, very different. Uh, I think rather than just being purely focused on this coming off season and the contracts we're going to be doing in the arbitration cases we're going to be handling, you know, we're focused still on just the, the safety of, of our our clients, the men who are out there playing, and we're, we're focused on uh, the agreements that have been reached or the rules that have been imposed and making sure that it's fairly administered to our clients. Overall, how do I feel about things? I feel very good about things. I mean, I believe that we as a society are, are going to find a resolution to our current pandemic situation, and we're going to rebound economically. And I think the game of baseball is in great shape, and ultimately it's in good hands. And you've got a bunch of superstar players out there who want to be playing the game, who love the game, who are are willing to endure less than ideal circumstances to get out there and play right now. Uh, so I think we're going to get through this. I think baseball is going to do great and going to rebound economically. And I'm, I'm very optimistic for the future. Well, I am too. And from one baseball fan to another, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to take part in this podcast. I really appreciate you know, the insight you've given us and, you know, generally talking about your path so that others can see, you know, that there are many ways to getting to, you know, the representation world. And thank you so much, not just for this, but for being a supporter and a longtime member of the Sports Lawyers Association. It's absolutely my pleasure to be a member of the Sports Lawyers Association. And it's my pleasure to be with you. And and I always enjoy talking to you, Bobby. So thanks for having me. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for tuning in today. Feel free to share your thoughts with us on Twitter at Sports Lawyers or find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and be sure to be on the lookout for more podcasts.